Uh, we can turn back to the passage we read there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we can read verses 18 to 20. Well, that should read from verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But especially uh, verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. You ever met somebody who in the past witnessed very brightly for Jesus, but today they don't do it? You ever met somebody who used to read the Bible with delight, but today they don't do it. You ever met somebody who loved to come to what we call the means of grace? But today they don't do it. Why don't they do it? Well, I suppose lots of answers could be given to that. But I think verse 19 of this chapter gives a very common answer. They have quenched the spirit. I mean, these instructions here are delivered to Christians, not to the unconverted. Although there is a sense in which the unconverted can quench the spirit if they persist in refusing the gospel. I mean, that's a very serious thing to do. To refuse the gospel is to despise the best thing a person can have. The gospel offers us salvation freely. And to say to God, you don't want it. Well, that's saying something very powerful, isn't it? <clears throat> if somebody was to give me a present, and I just ignored it, well, they wouldn't be too happy, would they? If the queen was to send me a present, and I ignored it, well, in ancient times, that could be treason. But when God offers us a present, and we don't take it, you're saying something to the giver, and you're saying something about the gift. And at the same time, you're saying something about yourself. 
you're saying to God, I don't want a present from you. You're saying about Jesus, the gift, that he's not worth having. And you're saying about yourself, that you'd prefer to be poor, spiritually poor, forever. It's a very strange response. And the Holy Spirit, nowhere in his word does he say that he'll come back another time. There's always a last time when he speaks to somebody. We just don't know when. And if he never speaks to us again, we'll never think about him again. So the unconverted certainly can do something to the spirit. As the book of Genesis tells us, when God gave his assessment or his response, we might say, to life before the flood, he just said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And we know what the outcome was, don't we? Ultimately, there was just one family where God was worshipped. And that's because all the others had resisted. But anyway, if that that, um, describes who you are, then your responsibility is to take the gift. And there's ways laid down for taking it. You could almost say, even as you have two hands to receive a gift, you receive God's gift with one hand of repentance and one hand of faith. And that's the only way you can get it. God only gives it to those who repent of their sins and who trust in Jesus. Depend upon him. Delight in him. So I hope if you are in that category, you will accept the offer today. Because you might not get it tomorrow. But as I said, this verse here is addressed to Christians. Quench not the spirit. Where does the idea of quenching come from? Well, it's to do with putting out a fire. And you'll find that some translations translate this as 
Don't put out the Spirit's fire. It's an instruction. A command. It's not a suggestion. Paul is saying to his readers here in Thessalonica, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And given as the Holy Spirit is actually guiding Paul to write these words, we could almost say that what's been said here is that the Holy Spirit is saying to us, don't put out my fire. That is his fire. And it's creating the possibility, of course, that we can't put it out. Doesn't it? I mean, the three questions I asked earlier. How spontaneous is your witness? How pleasant is the Bible? How eager are we to come to the means of grace? When we think of the Holy Spirit as a fire, perhaps certain different ideas come to mind. We might think of what John the Baptist said about Jesus, that when he comes, he will come with the Spirit and with fire. So we might wonder if that's what Paul means here. Or we might think of the day of Pentecost, when shapes like tongues of fire appeared on the 120 who were gathered there. I don't think it refers to either of them. The fire that John the Baptist predicted, he's just saying that Jesus will do two things when he comes. He'll give the spirit, but the fire there, when you shall baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, the fire there is judgment. As you can see if you look up the context, he'll burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist. When he's referring to fire there, it's not actually referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the alternative to the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, these tongues of fire, they just indicated the presence of God. God had come down and he was going to speak through these people. So he appeared as things that look like tongues of fire. I don't think that's what's referred to here either. But quite often in the Bible, fire is a symbol of purification. You get the illustration of the silversmiths who burns the the dross of the metal in order for the metal to be pure. And I think that is 
what's being described here. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Sorry, quench not the Holy Spirit. Don't interfere with your sanctification. We have to contribute to our sanctification. But we're not to put something into our sanctification that's going to reverse it or negate it. And since we're told not to quench him, we're not to put out the fire of purification. We may ask ourselves, is there anything different between Paul's exhortation to quench not the Spirit and to grieve not the Spirit? I mean, they both could happen simultaneously. But quenching the Spirit is what we do. Grieving is what he does. It's quite a solemn set of pictures, isn't it? Ever seen a somebody just kick some earth over a fire? A campfire? That's the idea Paul has here. Or pouring water on a fire. Just to put it out. And somebody may come along and say, well, there once was a fire here. But it's out. So anyway, it would be quite sad if at this moment, some of us, or even one of us, was quenching the Spirit and grieving Him. I just want to look at uh, certain th- things. Who does Paul say this to? He says it to the church in Thessalonica, the people he wrote to. And what does he say to them? Well, I think, well, I'll try to show that he mentions three things that describe life with the unquenched spirit. And then he mentions three things that are dangers to the presence of the spirit or ways to quench it. But we'll see that as we move along. Who was he writing to? <clears throat> well, the church in Thessalonica at this particular moment was a very young church. There's only a couple of months since it started. We can read about the commencement of the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> and Paul says he was there for three Sabbaths, which is about a month depending on how you start it. And then they were forced to leave. And he had to go down 
as we know, to Berea. And from there, they went to Athens. And while in Athens, Paul was very concerned about the believers back in Thessalonica. Because after all, he'd only been there for a month. So he sent Timothy uh, back to see them, how they were getting on. And when Timothy came back, he wrote this letter. So this is a letter to a very young church. But what kind of church was it? Well, they had a, what we could call a very dramatic conversion experience. Because Paul describes that in the first chapter of this letter. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I mean, that made some impression, didn't it? I mean, prior to Paul and Silas and Timothy coming to Thessalonica, there wasn't one Christian in the city. But after they had left, after a few weeks, they left a church there that was marked by these three things, power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or or assurance, as other versions say. But the conviction or the assurance is not about their own salvation, What they are convicted or assured about is the truth of the gospel. They believed it was the very word of God. They had never heard it before. But because it came with such um, emphasis by the Holy Spirit, they were convinced it was the real thing. And they embraced it and became the disciples of, of Jesus. So they were a young church that had a very good beginning. But Paul was concerned that the devil may have got in and disturbed them. And that's why he sent Timothy there. And he mentions how they felt when Timothy came back in chapter 3 and verses 6 and 7. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The faith of these Thessalonians encouraged Paul Remember that when he was in Athens, he had to argue his case at the Areopagus against all the philosophers. And the majority of them treated him with contempt. They called him just somebody who was picking up scraps from the ground. What comforted him? What he heard about the believers in Thessalonica. And what were they like? We're told in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians that they had engaged in very effective evangelism. 
and they're only a few weeks old. I mean, how far had they evangelized? Well, we might find this hard to believe, but they'd actually reached out to an area almost the size of Scotland. Because he says there in chapter 1, verse 8, For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, well, these two places together were the size of Scotland. So while Paul was down in Athens, or in Berea, the people he had left behind in Thessalonica, despite the fact they had experienced persecution and opposition, they had actually managed to spread the gospel in the surrounding countryside for miles and miles. And not only that, he says about them, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's almost as if Paul bumped into people and some might have said to him, what have you been doing recently? And he might have said, well, I was up in Thessalonica. And the person he's speaking to would say, oh, that's that place for all these people who are talking about this new message come from. So they were evangelizing. But not only that, we're told that they were marked by brotherly love. I mean, Paul says that in chapter 3. So this is a very healthy church he's writing to. He's not writing to the church of Laodicea and saying to them, be careful you don't quench the spirit. He's actually writing to a church that is itself on fire. It's on fire in lots of ways. It's spreading the faith. It's making um, progress. It's marked by brotherly love. And so why does Paul tell them not to quench the spirit? Well, he tells them it because they haven't done it yet. I mean, that's why he tells them it. But they tell them as the danger that they could yet do it. I mean, if you are on fire, what's the two options that's ahead of you? Well, it's either the fire keeps spreading or the fire goes out. And therefore Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Make progress or lose it. That's his options, isn't it? It's very challenging. We're either going forwards or we're going back. Can't be static. Going ahead, making progress, or we're going back. So that's the people he was writing to. But then, just a brief word about the context. This statement, do not quench the spirit, it comes in the middle of seven exhortations. There's the three exhortations before it. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances. That's the three that precede this exhortation. And then there's the three that follow it. Do not despise prophesying. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. I mean, there's a structure there. There are seven. And seven exhortations. The central one is do not quench the spirit. The three that come before it describe life with the unquenched spirit. Life with the unquenched spirit is marked by rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. The three that follow the exhortation are warnings. He's telling the Thessalonians what they should not do if they want to maintain the spirit in the way they currently have him. And the three things they should not do, one is don't despise prophecies, but test them. The second one is hold fast what is good. And the third one is abstain from every form of evil. If they give in to one of these three negatives, they'll have quenched them. So I just want to think of these three things briefly. Life with the unquenched spirit. And we can see that the three things that Paul mentions, well, they've got to be constant. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Each one of them is a constant activity. We have to be joyful always, we have to be praying without ceasing, and in whatever circumstances we are in, and we're always in some kind of circumstance. So whatever circumstance we're in, we have to give thanks. Constantness, if such a word exists. Regards stamina. What am I to be like? If I have the spirit just now, what am I to be like in an hour's time? Well, I have to be rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. What am I to be like in two hours' time? Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. What am I to be like in a day's time? Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. What am I to be like for the rest of my life? Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. What's true of me, or required of me, is also required of you.
if you're a Christian. None of us have any authority to delete one of these three requirements. We are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Where do we get the strength for that? Well, the answer is obvious. From the unquenched spirit. The Holy Spirit will enable his people to have these three experiences. So there's a certain sense in which we can ask ourselves, how joyful am I? How prayerful am I? How thankful am I? And these three things, the three answers to that question will tell us everything. What would they be rejoicing in? Well, they would be rejoicing in God's salvation, wouldn't they? I mean, they were told about what happened when they heard the gospel. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. I mean, they they heard this message of deliverance from their sins. And they just turned. I mean, turned is a beautiful word, isn't it? It wasn't just they stopped doing what they had previously been doing. All that would do was put you in no man's land. But they turned in a new direction altogether and started journeying towards heaven. God's salvation had come into their experience. Their sins had been forgiven. They had been brought into the family of God. They had all these wonderful promises given to them that had been fulfilled in their lives. And they had this great prospect ahead of them of being in glory. And it was, it was inconceivable for them not to be joyful. And as day went after day, as day passed after day passed after day passed, nothing happened that affected their salvation. There could be all kinds of things taking place around them, but nothing altered their salvation. And what was true of them is true for us. Our salvation never changes. And therefore, if we were joyful about it in the past, we should be joyful about it now. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I cease to value God's salvation, it means I'm bored with it. And I want something else to move me. But if God's salvation doesn't stretch down into the depths of our hearts, what will? If the fullness of his grace doesn't brighten our outlook, and if it doesn't cheer our souls, and as we watch society decline, of course it should grieve us. But it should make our salvation shine brighter. 
and the joy that the Savior promised. Because he did promise it. My joy I give unto you. So rejoice always. Everything else in life, one thing can be said about all of them. They don't provide permanent joy. But the gospel does. And then there's prayer. Pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. I mean, Paul doesn't mean that you, you go... If you're a Christian, you go around mumbling prayers all the time. I mean, there's lots of situations in which people cannot, won't be praying. It sounds totally absurd, of course, but they won't be praying when they're asleep. So praying without ceasing doesn't mean praying 24 hours a day. But it does mean being in an attitude of prayer. And I've been always ready to take something to God in prayer. And to just to be realizing that prayer is always appropriate. If we're in a circumstance where prayer is not appropriate, we're in the wrong circumstance. And prayer is obviously by this statement said to be very frequent. And of course, we can pray walking along the street. We can pray in lots of situations. And it's a sign that the spirits are working in our hearts. You might be walking down the road and so-and-so's face appears in your imagination for no apparent reason. Who put that there? It could be the spirit. Pray for them. There's, there's lots of examples where people have said that at a certain time on a certain day they were, in a, they were in a spot of bother and somehow they got out of it and later on as they spoke to another person about it they discovered that that other person was burdened to pray for them at that moment. And from one point of view you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point of it is fellowship, sharing, prayer. Someone doesn't come into their imagination because some or other it just pops out of nowhere. God has just given us an invitation to participate in his activity. And me or you in Inverness can be led to pray for somebody miles away. But the God who is beside us is also beside them. And he's just saying, pray. And then there's a third one. Be thankful. In all circumstances. It doesn't say, as has often been pointed out, it doesn't say to be thankful for all circumstances. There's lots of circumstances in which we will not be thankful for them. But we can be thankful in them. And there's a world of difference there. Sometimes we can get let our circumstances 
overburden us. And they press us down. And we say to ourselves, well, why is God letting this happen? And we're not going to get the answer to that question. But he does say to us, and whatever your circumstances are, I'll be with you. That he'll be there. And therefore, whatever circumstances we are in, we can be thankful that God never leaves us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his promise. I read a book. I bought it last week at Dingwall. It cost me a pound. And it was about gratitude. And in the, in the little book, it took 20 minutes to read, actually, 25 minutes. In the book, the author told of a man who had a very severe illness. And the illness was of such a severity, he wasn't liable to live long. But he said that out of this man's experience, he was thankful. Just thankful in all. And he said about his friend, this man who was thankful in his, dis, in, his, in his dire situation, he said about his friend that he made Jesus visible, intelligible, and desirable. I mean, that's some testimony, isn't it? But in his trouble, he made Jesus visible, intelligible, and desirable. No one would have wanted the man's experience. But in his experience, he made Jesus desirable. So that's living with the unquenched spirit. How to quench him? Well, Paul gives three dangers. One is, don't despise prophecies. What does he mean by that? Well, in the early church, they had no Bible. How did God reveal his will to them? Well, we're told how he did it. He did it by those who are called either apostles or prophets. And he tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that they were the foundation of the church. They were there at the start. And God spoke through them. But of course, it was always possible for somebody to get up and say something and, uh, and claim to be under the Spirit's influence. And what the, the person said could be complete nonsense. And the outcome would be that people would despise it. And they would just say, that was a ridiculous thing that you said. And uh, the danger of that kind of response was that you would despise all prophesied. And Paul here says, don't do that. Because that's how God speaks. Instead, you have to test them. We 
We might think that was a wonderful experience to be in, to have somebody sitting beside you. And God spoke to that person right there and then. We might say, well, that would be incredible. Well, no doubt it was. But we got something far better. Where does God speak? He speaks in his word. And Paul says to us, don't despise God's speech. He speaks in his word. Pay attention to it. That tells us how central the Bible should be. If we give up on the Bible, how is God going to speak to us? And it's an important question to ask ourselves. How much of it do we actually read? How much do we meditate on? Because if we're giving up on the Bible, we're heading to quench the Spirit. And then there's the second one. He says there, Hold fast what is good. Why had he to hold it fast? Because somebody would try and take it from them. Who would try and take it from them? The devil. Or the false teachers that are going around. As in 2 Thessalonians, Paul mentions them. They would try and take from them the good things that God had given them. They might have got something in a prophecy from somebody and they were to hang on to it. And of course, if the Spirit's not quenched, they have power to hang on. And it's the same with the Bible, isn't it? The Bible is full of treasures. And the astonishing thing is that when we find a new one, there's no reason to drop the others that we already have. We can be given the strength and the power just to hold on to them all. And we're to hold fast. We're to just make sure that we don't let them go. The Bible is full of these spiritual treasures. Valuable beyond price. And of course one reason for holding fast to them is we'll never know when we need them might not need a particular promise today, but we might need it next Thursday. And we might say to ourselves today, well, that's saying nothing to me at the moment. But it might in the future. And we're to hold fast to them. And then there's the third danger, abstain from every form of evil. And of course Paul there is telling us there's lots of forms of evil. And it's not possible for any one Christian to have every form of evil. But he's not writing to one Christian here. He's writing to a church. 
And if each person has got different forms of evil facing them, then in the congregation, say there are a hundred people, then how many forms would they have? You know, the doctor says to us um, to stop eating cakes. He doesn't mean reduce your number of cakes. He means stop. Abstain means have nothing to do with it. The temptation will come. Whatever form it is, it may be a form that appeals to us individually, or it may be a form that appeals to somebody else. But the response is, don't touch it. And we might wonder, well, that thing may not be so bad as another thing. That's not the point. The point is to abstain from every form of evil. Because if we don't, we'll quench the spirit. And we might end up like the kind of people we mentioned at the start, whose witness was once very bright. and who read the Bible with delight, and who loved to attend the means of grace. But something went wrong. Quenched the spirit. I just want to close with this. I read a comment that somebody made about this verse, and he said, that a Christian can quench himself, he can quench others, and he can quench the Bible. He can quench himself by just doing these three things that Paul just mentioned, despising what God says, failing to hold fast what is good and abstaining from every form of evil. You can quench the spirit in others just by saying something. Something inappropriate. It might be discouragement. Somebody might be wanting to do something that this Christian knows is not very wise. But he can discourage the person in a way that's wrong. Quench the spirit. But the most serious one to me that this man mentioned was we can make the Bible silent. We can read it. But we don't hear it. And that's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? So Paul says to us, quench not the Spirit. Shall we pray?